Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording this from the Aboriginal land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening to us today. Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast. I'm Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. This podcast episode is supported by Baxter. The podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only. We advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. Professional medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. So today is a follow-up discussion from a recent symposium we ran, Nourishing the Undernourished, and that looked at um, some complex case studies that presented real nutritional challenges. One of the topics that we covered during that presentation was burns and the use of indirect calorimetry in managing burn-injured patients, and it really sparked interest amongst the audience. So to explore this in a little more detail, I'm joined by Caroline Nichols, who was one of our presenters for that symposium. Caroline is a senior dietitian at Concord Repatriation General Hospital in Sydney, working in burns and aged care. She's got over 15 years experience working with burn injured patients and is well recognised in the field of nutrition support and clinical research in severe burn injury. She has an interest in the role indirect calorimetry can play in optimising energy provision for the patient group and is undertaking research in this area. So thanks very much for joining me today, Caroline, and welcome to our DC podcast. Thanks very much, Jane. And I'd like to acknowledge the Wongal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands I um, work and live on um, and are coming to from today. So just to get to know you a bit better, Caroline, and it's always interesting to know how dietitians have got to their current position. Can you just tell us a bit about your dietetics career and how you came to be working in the area of burn injury? Sure. So um, I found clinical dietetics uh, to, in our placements to be the area I was most interested in uh, and was lucky enough to get a position early on um, uh, my post-graduation at Prince Henry, uh, which moved on to Prince of Wales as a rotating clinical position. Uh, and in that time, I discovered I was mainly interested in nutrition support uh, and got lots of support to join uh, OSPEN, go to conferences, uh, join the, the interest groups that used to be around. Um, and through that, discovered the the Burns position was coming up at Concord and uh, was offered that in the early 2000s. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to work with managers who've been prepared to um, consider reduced hours for these sort of specialised positions and have and have now ended up in a uh, job share uh, position with a really great colleague. So being able to um, combine uh, family and a specialist position has been a really wonderful opportunity. Um 
we are fortunate in dietetics, aren't we, that there are those opportunities do present perhaps more than in other industries and allows you to really continue your engagement and active engagement in that area and balance everything yeah. else in your life. Yeah, yeah, no, it's been good. So thinking about, so the burn injured patients, I mean, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face when you're working with this, this kind of patient? I, I guess the big thing is to remember that you're meeting these people in what is one of the lowest points of their lives. Um, they're facing sort of quite life-altering injuries, um, the pain, uh, the scarring that comes with that, um, and there's sort of a bit of a, a joke about um, uh, Burns patients that they are either mad, bad or sad, uh, and it's all of them involve your an emotional reaction <laughs> from you because some people just have an awful accident. They did something really silly and they've ended up in this position. Somebody else might have been in a terrible car accident or, and yes, there are the ones that have done something stupid, but, um, uh, but they all uh, have ended up in a position that requires your care. One of the uh, amazing things about working with these patients though is that the people who end up working as part of the Burns team are really special people, like from the, the doctors um, through the amazing nursing staff and then the whole allied health team. Like I've never worked so closely with all of the allied health team, the physios, the OTs, the social worker, psychologist, speechy, um, everybody's playing a role. Uh, and that's a really nice aspect of working with Burns patients. Yeah, that we must have, be really rewarding on its own, like yeah, let alone the patient that's, outcomes, but that's that right. is rewarding. Yeah, and that's one of the, the great things about Burns is speaking about that sort of patient journey is seeing them from that lowest point uh, and getting to see them get better enough that everybody's ready for them to go to rehab. And then they might come back for some of their uh, recon surgery or their laser treatment and um and you're getting to chat to someone who's back to themselves who might never have thought they were going to be back to themselves. And this might be a new version of themselves. But And, and the littlest thing can be something that stood out to them. Um, that's that's a really lovely aspect yeah. of it. I always yeah. think um, like burning yourself, just a mild burn, is so oh, painful. It's so it's painful. So, <laughs> so incredibly painful. And I just always think, oh, I can't even imagine what it oh. must be like to have it all over your body or to yeah. have more than just your oh, fingertip. Yes. And and that yes, I you know, bump the iron and just go, oh. yes. um and we get very uh I guess blase is the word. Um oh it's only a one percent burn. That's still the size of your hand. Uh that's, that's um, huge. That's huge. That's right. So so yes, when we start talking 20%, oh it's it's a small burn because it's only five to ten percent. Well, yes, it's a still a substantial injury for that person um, and, yeah, it's, it's sort of taking that into bringing it back to them uh, and how so they might be. When a, um, a new patient presents to the, the Burns unit um, yep. and you're called in, where do you start with your assessment um, of a new patient presenting? Um, it really is just the, the same as any other nutrition assessment, the ABCD. Um Except I guess the differences are that you're not necessarily needing the nitty-gritty of uh, their diet history, for example, but you're still wanting to know their weight and weight history. That might, the patient might not be able to tell you, and so that might involve um, 
standing around with the nurses having a guess at how mm. much you, you think the patient weighs. Um, one of the issues with a burn and things like anthropometry is the fluid shifts, so the edema that develops, um, and, and so that can make um, assessing someone's weight quite challenging. Um, so you're trying to get a usual weight rather than uh, so talking to family and things like that. Uh, looking at the biochem, you're still wanting to, um, to, to, I guess, to review it, but being aware that all of the figures that you're normally looking at uh, will be impacted by the burn and the inflammatory response and that acute phase response. So needing to interpret it with a bit of care. So just with those, are you tending to look for trends rather than absolute numbers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, so, so the albumin will go down. Uh, the CRP is up. They, they are not, yes. yeah. Uh, but even their um, uh, renal function, you're wanting to, to be looking at the trend of it rather than a one-off uh, number. Uh, clinically, oh, I call the thing, again, the normal things that you'd be looking for, these patients as one of the aspects of their hypermetabolic response will be febrile. Uh, so whereas a patient who's running a high fever on uh, a different clinical area might be being assessed for infection, is much slower to uh, provide antibiotics until infection is actually confirmed with our patients because actually that fever is probably related to their um, hypermetabolic response uh, rather than, uh, but that's, something as dietitians we need to be aware of because it's just reinforcing this patient is running higher energy needs than normal. Uh, we also, you know, worrying about what are their bowels doing with all the pain meds that they're on. So aperients are pretty standard. Um, uh, yeah, and I guess, you know, what's their urine output? What's the, the other fluids that are going in? You're trying to get that sort of bigger picture of them. I assume that uh, one of the issues that you need to look at is how they're going to get their nutrition, like the yes. root of it. Yes. So in terms of like just trying to get a sense of their diet, you're just trying to get a sense of how were they eating before? Are they already malnourished? Am I worried about their nutritional state? But then, yes, once – so somebody with a relatively small burn, as I said, 5 to 10% who we – who we understand, and I guess that's the thing about burns, if it's an accident, they tend to be coming to you well-nourished um, with no prior nutrition concerns. Uh, and so at that point you're just trying to 5 to 10%, you'd be looking at oral nutrition support and just um, helping them ensure that they can meet their requirements for this sort of short period of time that they might have the elevated requirements. Sometimes the challenges with those patients are understanding that this isn't forever and if somebody's come through an age where cholesterol and low fat is an issue and you're, or even low sugar these days and you're busy saying you've got to eat lots of energy, that can be quite challenging for patients to work through with you. Once it's a severe burn and that's classified as one that's over 20%, we need to assess them for whether or not they're going to be able to meet those requirements and we're assessing them for enteral feeds. It's very rare to use TPN up in our unit. Uh, the infection risks are just too great. And so unless someone's gut isn't working, we'll be enterally feeding. So what sort of um, percentage above a normal energy expenditure would you expect to see in burns? Like how much, how much higher are their energy requirements? Yeah, so they range... 
sort of there's a very rough rule of thumb that um, for every 10% of their body surface area that's burnt, there's a, that's an additional 10% injury factor. But it sort of times out or or slows down at about the um, the 70% on top of normal. We don't, some of the old equations used to go for double. Uh, that's, we don't see that now because of the changes in practice of um, uh, wound covering and thermoneutral environments, better right. pain management, that sort so of thing. Just the actual treatment of the burns. Treatment itself, on. yes. Yeah, okay, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, in, so if we think about energy requirements then, do you generally use predictive equations or what do you do? So, yeah, so we we use um, sort of a burn-specific predictive equation or um, the modified Schofield is our, our one, uh, otherwise uh, Toronto, uh, and, and then we're also using indirect calorimetry. We're lucky enough to have a desktop unit called the Fitmate Um that's available to us up in the unit for the ICU and intubated patients. We've got access to uh, units that click into their ventilator circuits. Uh, so you're actually, with those, being able to actually measure their energy expenditure uh, and use that to just help guide you much more individually for the patient. So for those who might be listening that indirect calorimetry may be something new or something that they've potentially just read about in research yeah. papers, <laughs> yeah. um, can you give us a, just a bit of a uh, quick um, explanation of what it actually is? So it's a machine that's measuring the um, oxygen consumption of a patient and the carbon dioxide production uh, and by doing that, it then it's using the Weir equation, um, which was developed a long time ago now, which was able to de- determine the energy expenditure from those two uh, figures. Um, and it doesn't work for patients if you're not able to capture that full amount of oxygen uh, consumption. So, for example, if somebody's got a leak or... Um, uh, um, or there's other reasons for losses or, or uh, the acid base might not be correct. So patients on CVBHD, for example, um, renal replacement therapy. But on the whole, that's that's the basics. If you come back to our basic physiology, it's um, it's the the use of oxygen and uh, and production of carbon dioxide. And, and why is it particularly helpful if it is in burn patients? So uh, because burns, because we don't really uh, know what the actual, uh, because things are changing. So we don't, the predictive equations, all the research has shown that they don't necessarily accurately uh, predict our patients' requirements. Um, And so this is a way of being able to just be more accurate. And you're wanting to avoid in like all critical um, critically ill patients, you wanted to avoid that overfeeding or underfeeding. Both of those are recognised to have um, implications on outcomes. Uh, for a long time, there was sort of this sense of, well, if patients need some, they need more. Um, and now mm. we're much better at recognising that that's not the case, that there is danger in in too much. Uh, so, so, yeah, burns are just, I guess, just that extreme end uh, of um, that uh, metabolic response to to trauma and injury and so that's why um, indirect calorimetry is particularly useful for them. So are you using it more when you can as you say it's not able to be used for every patient but is it becoming more of a part of your clinical practice as opposed to a research tool? Yeah so we 
we got access to it um, a few years ago and I guess uh, found it a bit daunting to begin with. It is, it's mm. new technology. It's not something you're necessarily um, familiar with as dietitians. Um, uh, so we figured that actually doing a research project was a way of enforcing it to become part of our practice. <laughs> if you've got your 10% burn, <laughs> you've got to do it on them. Uh, and so that was actually really useful because you build up your confidence, you um, uh, you get much better at your spiel to your patients explaining it. Uh, and so, yes, initially we did it on all our burns, um, over a 10% burn, and our older patients, our um, 75-year and older patients with any size burn. And what we wanted to look at was how they felt about it, like how they, what their experience of it was, and um, also how did it compare with our equations. Uh, and so that was a really useful exercise. As I said, we built our own confidence, uh, but also discovered that uh, we managed to do it in 32 patients over the year that we were doing it for um, and, and did a survey with those patients and they were able to sell most like almost 80% said it was comfortable and over 80% were happy to repeat it and thought that the time it took was okay so getting that feedback from them was really useful and then we were able to show that it uh, confirmed that our equations are not accurate um, and and so it does sort of add that level of um, confidence to what you're doing and proposing with your patients. We changed our care in a third of the cases. Wow. Either, yeah, either reducing because you didn't need as much anymore, uh, extending or, or starting feeds or, mm. or supplements. Um, so, yeah, and it added about 40 minutes uh, to our time to that assessment. So we are getting faster, I would say, but it, it is a still a significant amount of time. And where else is it used? What other patient groups is it used for in the hospital? Yeah, we, so in our um, intensive care, so the right. critically ill. So uh, the recommendations these days are for patients um, who are going to be in there for longer than three days. You want to get past that initial acute phase. Uh, so, yeah, our intensive care use it. And anywhere, it's uh, it's the extremes, I guess, uh, so of size, um, so very underweight, very overweight, but also anywhere that the equations remain a bit questionable, I guess, so neuromuscular disorders and, um, and yeah, it's we're using it for patients where you just don't feel like you have the evidence to support the equations that you mm. might be using. Uh, COPD. You know, like they can either be highly catabolic or, or not, and you don't know which is your patient apart from looking at your tiny little skinny yes. <laughs> uh, person going, yeah, I think you need more. Um, it's nice to get the sense of how much more do they need. Yeah, and, and I guess indirect calorimetry has been positioned as the sort of gold standard when you come yes. to guidelines and all that sort of thing, but yeah. not everyone has access has to access. the machine or anything. Yeah. So if... If um, and you talked about some of the barriers being you know time or the patient you know having yeah. other issues or whatever, but um, if uh, a hospital were to or a department were to sort of start using indirect calorimetry, what would you warn them are the biggest barriers? It is confidence. confidence <laughs> so that's different. Yeah. That, that's different learning styles, though. Some people are get in there and just go for it, 
great. I wasn't like that. I needed to practice a bit more. Um, but it's so previously the issues, as you mentioned, was just access and um, and I guess that's been overcome uh, considerably by the newer machines that are available. The the um, QNRG plus just. I haven't had enough time to play with it yet, but our um, hospital has one of those in the in the ICU, and it's just been a game changer. Even from the old module that we had, that was a game changer from before. Like mm. it just it just linked into your monitor, but it required a lot of effort in terms of um, pulling out the data from that. It just was the raw data, and you were having to do the analysis on it. So, being able the newer machines, being able to be quick to calibrate portable uh, and uh, run a quick test and to tell you this is the steady state, you've reached steady state, you know, you're you're good to go. Uh, It's just making it more accessible for us and to be part of your routine care. Uh, And um, so the issues remain cost, uh, infection control, uh, things like being able to ensure that everything is wiped downable and we have a rule that you don't take it into somebody with a multi-resistant organism. it, it's not worth losing your machine, <laughs> um, yeah. unfortunately. Um, yeah, I, I guess. Um, so, what are the what are the steps? So, if you decide that a patient is eligible, suitable, or you want to do it, then what are the steps? Uh, can you just walk in yeah. and go, "Oh, we'll do it now, thank you," yeah. or not? No, look, I try and I, I I try and prep the patient the day before um, to talk it through with them. So, the ideal conditions. Uh, that the patient is fasted for up to five hours. Um, uh, sorry, not up to, but at least five hours. Uh, that they're uh, two hours post alcohol and nicotine. Alcohol is not such a problem in the unit, but um, or um, at least four hours post caffeine, and that they're supposed to be rested, no physical or psychological stress, and awake. So, and in a comfortable environment. So what my, my routine is to touch base with the patient the day before and talk through what they're expecting to have to go through. So the unit that we're using up there, the Fitmate, involves a mouthpiece that's a bit like a snorkel, if, if anybody can imagine what's going into their mouth. That's attached to a filter, which is then attached to a, a tubing that links it into the machine and the oxygen analyzer and the turbine. And then they have a nose peg over their nose. So I warn patients, it's not the most uh, comfortable thing to do, but it's equally not the most uncomfortable thing. And they're likely to be breathing like that for about 15 minutes. Um, so I find that the younger patients are enthusiastic, really keen, and want to know what the numbers are mm-hmm. telling them. And the older patients are like, what on earth are you asking me to do? I don't have teeth. I can't hold on to this. So you'll be supporting them, holding it up, um, one of the barriers we have is that we can't get that fasting period. They Continuous feeds are fine. They're okay if that's all they're having. But I'm not going to ask someone to miss breakfast and I can't get in there early enough to miss breakfast. Yes. So we, I guess that comes back to then how are you interpreting those numbers? I'm recognising these aren't perfect resting energy expenditure. So we, I, I would then be... Um, adjusting in terms of, well, what's my activity factor? Do I round that down a little bit? Because you're still needing to add an activity factor. These patients are moving around. It's different to the the critical care patients. Um, 
yeah, so I've gone from thinking that indirect calorimetry was the be all and end all, and it was that that was the magic number. And the more you use it, you can see. Well, if I play with the steady state like this, I've just knocked off a hundred calories, like, mm. which is right. Like that was right. That steady state was correct, and is this steady state correct? So you recognise that actually it's a bit like everything else in health yeah. <laughs> that your that your clinical interpretation is still really important. But I guess I, um, steps ahead of the predictive equations right. with yes. a lot of fudge factors. Yes, in them. yes. <laughs> yeah. And so what about repeating? So if you do it on a, a patient, then um, what What then? Do you repeat it at a certain point, time point? So that I guess that's been one of the things that's come out of our research project is recognising that that really is just that one time frame. So particularly if you know, so ideally we we would like to be testing it weekly. We, we aren't managing to do that uh, at the moment. So we're trying to do it every second to third week or if we know that there's a substantial change in the patient's condition, if if, uh, if they're not healing um if they're losing weight, if they're uh, if they're not, as you know, they're having more surgery, um, if their therapy's ramping up, those sorts of things are triggers to to redo it. Uh, or equally, if so, just with a patient this week, I redid her because she was so keen to get the feeding tube out, and I was trying to keep it in for one last surgery because the surgery knocks them about. Mm. It's painful. The dressings post are painful. Um, and so I got her to agree to do it one more time for me and um, and it showed that her metabolic rate was reducing. Uh, so even though she only had this sort of 1% to 2% left to heal and that needed surgery, her metabolic rate was reducing enough for me to be comfortable. She was going to meet those requirements both orally and with supplements. So, so it's really nice to be using it really pr- proactively like that. Mm. Mm. Um, and you mentioned that it changed... Your management in about 30% of yep. the patients, you upped or yep. down or whatever. Yep. Have there been times when you're really surprised at the results that you yes. get? Yes, yes. And uh, it's often the oldies that surprise you. Uh, for a long time, there was a perception that the patients, the older patients, don't necessarily need as much as you mm. think they're going to need. Uh, and for some, probably three quarters, that's true. And then every so often, you'll get someone who you look at and you go, where is this going? Like, yeah, they'll be sort of 30% higher than you were expecting them to be. Yeah. Uh, and and gives you, the, sorry, yeah, go on. No, I was going to say, it just gives you the ammunition, uh, so to speak, uh, to not only negotiate with the team but also negotiate with the patient and work with them uh, about why you might be keeping on the fat, that feeding tube that they yes. don't want. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, like, is it sort of also validated in terms of, um, you know, you might see their requirements are much higher than you expect and so you bump up their their feeds or their, their the amount you're providing. Does that then relate to the biochemical outcomes and the weight sort of outcomes that you'd expect? We haven't. It's really tricky showing outcomes mm. like that. And the that, that's that's not- the goal. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like how can I show that I've improved the actual situation and at the moment that's really challenging yeah um yeah was it my care or was it the surgeon no I think it was yours Caroline (laughs) (laughs) but 
yeah, I, I think, you know, all those things taken into consideration, the fact that the results you get with the um, calorimetry are surprising sometimes just goes to show that if you were just using predictive equations, yes. you would have then, no clue that no, until right. a week later when they've lost yeah. quite a lot of weight yes. or yes. something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's interesting that it has like you've seen that it actually does change your your, your. delivery of your care there. Yes. Um, and in terms of sort of the limitations, you we've talked a bit about the barriers, but um, and you said dietitian time is can be a bit of an issue because it adds 40 yep. minutes to your time. Yep. Is it just, can you do it on your own? Do you need anyone else there? No, no. You yeah, can do it's it. Just, yeah, you do it by yourself. Um, it's... <laughs> It's a it's a sort of odd time with the patient because they can't talk to you. Yes. Uh, so you're sort of so that was one of the questions in our survey was did you find the dietitian's encouragement useful or was there anything else that you would find useful? And some of them mentioned maybe playing music. Uh, somebody talked about um, having because often what we're doing where the machine is prompting us to tell them oh you're breathing too frequently. Often people if you notice, you'll either breathe too deeply or you'll breathe too much because you're concentrating on your breath. And so often we're just saying to them, relax. And uh, so one young patient said, oh, can you get that app that has the breathing sounds and I'll, and I'll breathe to that. <laughs> so my oldies don't usually want me to do that. But, <laughs> but yes, um, so no, you, you're doing it by yourself. It's something that we could train up the nurses to do, but the nurses don't have time. No, uh, like no. it's not it's not necessarily technically challenging as long as you're sort of sticking to the basic rules. Um, but some of the other um, limitations are, so we looked at which patients we didn't do, like in that year, who didn't we do? And there were another 30 who would have been eligible. Um, I think a third of those did get done but didn't want to be in the, um, in the study, which was fine. Uh, and then there were another third who we didn't have time to get to, staffing either leave or whatever. Uh, and then the remaining third were things like they had a mouth burn or their lips were still injured okay. or they had the infection. Uh, so that's where like just the some of the practical uh, limitations of the setup that we've got. The newer setup um, with the, the sort of the hood, which is the um, where it sort of, got a ventilated hood that just it's almost a drape over like it's a solid bit over the patient and then a drape that so that's going to take away the effort required to hold it, the mouthpiece in so that doesn't left. require a mouthpiece no that's right. no mouthpiece so they the patient is literally so that the issue with that is if you're claustrophobic yes, yes. <laughs> you can see out uh, but yes, so that's our guess our, ne our next step is is utilizing something like that um, yeah. So for obviously for um, if dietitians are working in an area and their department is looking at getting a machine, it's all about confidence to start off with yes, to, to yeah. develop their confidence. But yeah. um, if we think, oh, sorry, go on. I was going to say and and be um, prepared to approach people that you know have got one. <laughs> like yes. ask, ask the reps, who's got one in my area that I could go and see? The reps are very happy to share that. And yes. most people <laughs> and most dietitians tend to be generous with their time and their knowledge. Um, yeah. So yeah. take advantage of, of the skills that are around you. And if we think about um, working um, just with burn injured patients generally, what would you say that your advice would be? Because it's probably a reasonably intimidating area for maybe a dietitian who's 
hasn't worked in that area before yeah. to to start working in. What do you you think um, would be your advice to someone who's about to start there? Um, again, it's a small area, uh, so there aren't that many burns units, and the dietitians that work in them are on the whole, are gorgeous, approachable <laughs> dietitians. We have a, uh, and so I guess my message would be, one, don't be afraid. It's not, um, you've got the skills. This is just nutrition support. Yes, there's there's some specifics that you might want to train up on, but um, approach people for help. Doesn't, like, there won't be, unless you're in New South Wales, there won't be another dietitian in your state. So go outside and approach the others and work with your team. I think. Don't underestimate how generous uh, the the Burns team that you work with will be. If you ask questions and um, attend the meetings and get that sense of where your care is fitting into the whole picture, you get so much more uh, out of out of your care as well. Um, and and the team get to know you much better and to recognise the role that you're playing. Uh, so, so, yes, I would just say, you know, the Burns community is a very um, tight-knit and don't be a – that sometimes can be a bit um, uh, <laughs> intimidating as well. Don't let it be that. If you show any interest, they will repay. Mm. Um, Actually, that, that is a question I just thought of is, um, you know, some uh, areas that you work in, nutrition, you might be fighting constantly to yeah, get a no. nutrition voice, but no, Burns are no, quite – Burns uh, are – Understand the importance. Yes, yes. Uh, it's it's often um, you forget how uh, <laughs> that everybody else has to advocate so much more, and then we might get somebody who's a new team member, like the new doctors, for example, who might be like, "Oh, I haven't educated you yet because I'm having to argue about <laughs> a thirty percent burn." Yes, they need a tube feed. What am I even talking to you about? We should yes. be just it should be in an X ray, and I'll be starting it. Um, yes, so yes, it's uh, no, it's not. It's a well, nutrition has a well-recognised role. Um, it's, it's yes, it's not, you're not fighting usually. Yeah. Well, look, thanks so much for your time, Caroline. It was, it was so interesting. And I feel like um, the shortcomings of the predictive equations have been talked about for so long. It's really nice to see that indirect calorimetry is becoming more accessible, being used in clinical practice, and people are better understanding its use and its applicability in their clinical practice. Um, if anyone's listening um, today would like to view the symposium Nourishing the Undernourished, you can access um, the recording of that symposium on the Dietitian Connection website and we'll also put a link in the show notes. Uh, and we'd like to thank Baxter for supporting the podcast episode and we'll also add a link in our show notes to the Baxter Professional Portal where you can register to access a range of resources about both indirect calorimetry and parental nutrition. Um, but Caroline, thanks really for your time today. It was a fascinating talk. Thanks so much, Jane, and, um, and to Baxter for the opportunity. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.